This podcast episode is brought to you by the Outcomes Rocket Network, where you get your healthcare insights from the most inspiring healthcare podcasters. Welcome to Clinical Research Confidential. On this show, we highlight and demystify the inner workings of this greatly misunderstood activity called clinical research. Now, why is clinical research important? Well, it's the basis for nearly every modern remedy for sickness and a growing method to build trust and solutions meant to optimize health. But it's not for the faint of heart. And so on this show, you'll hear what it really takes to succeed in the clinical research game. I'm your host, Joseph Kim, and I've spent over 23 years in the clinical research industry, now serving as the Chief Strategy Officer for Proof Pilot. Get ready for some adventures as we look into the underbelly of clinical research. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm here with Brad Hightower of Hightower Clinical Research. Brad's been making a lot of noise on LinkedIn uh, in the clinical research community, and I, I frankly love it. I think a lot of it is truth to power. Brad, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. So looking at your background, you've been in sort of the clinical side, clinical research industry for quite a long time. You've had a number of different posts and responsibilities through academia and industry and and so on. Give us a little history of you know how you got to to, to be the CEO of your own research uh, enterprise. Sure. Uh, I mean, I started out like a lot of people do, sort of fell in by accident. Uh, I had a friend who was leaving a research job at the local university and recommended that I you know go give it a shot. At the time, I was uh, supervising a plasma center, so I had some nice transferable skills. I could draw blood. You know, I had some experience. You know, proper documentation practices and. I landed the job and actually at the time I didn't have a degree. Uh, so I, I started at bottom of the barrel, you know, I was a, a research assistant, uh, in a very small neurology department, uh, that didn't really have a whole lot of trials going on. Uh, and again, like so many people, I, you know, didn't really get very good training. It was kind of a trial by fire. Uh, the two coordinators who were there left. So it was kind of left to figure out, <laughs> figure it out on my own and kind of pick up the pieces. And, uh, even though it was challenging in a lot of ways, it was great experience because I really got to see the full perspective uh, of what happens at a research site from you know, identifying trial opportunities, negotiating the budget, taking care of IRP submissions, all the startup process, and then obviously coordinating the studies from there. So I worked in academia for, I think, four or five years, uh, worked across uh, the street at the VA a little bit as well. I realized pretty quickly, though, that uh, academia is not for me. Uh, it was very inefficient. There were just a lot of problems with the alignment of incentives for some of the physicians. So mm. I got out of there uh, just about as quickly as I could and uh, moved on to a physician-owned hospital who had a nonprofit attached to them that, that ran their research. So I was like, great. I'm in a little more private setting. This is going to be cool. And there were a lot of benefits to it. We could use a central IRB. We weren't waiting for six months for IRB approvals right. or for, you know, budgets and contracts to be negotiated. Problem there was that the physician engagement was just, again, very, very minimal. They didn't pay their physicians for their, uh, their research time. So they'd rather be in the cath lab doing procedures, making money. So mm -hmm. I actually pitched to the organization, uh, the idea of going out to the community and working with some, some community physicians offering research infrastructure and sort of rolling them up under that that nonprofit didn't catch on. Uh, they really <laughs> weren't interested in it. 
Did you get any meantime, did you get any hate mail from that or was it just <laughs> no thanks? No, I, I think I think it was just sort of the concept wasn't well understood. You know, they were they didn't really see how it made sense, uh, which, you know, is perfectly fine. Even even now, a lot of people don't necessarily understand how a model like that might work. But in the meantime, I was talking to all these community physicians and realizing they want to participate in clinical trials, but don't have the infrastructure to do it. We know yeah. like the barrier of entry is very high. It's yeah. a problem, right? So, and you know, we hear the stats, like so many physicians have do one trial and quit, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. So what I really wanted to do was provide that infrastructure for free. So you know, no charge upfront to, to work with these physicians and we'll split study income as it comes in. So we're building a long-term investment and in creating research programs with community physicians. So I broke off maybe four and a half years ago, started doing this on my own. I think it's really shocking when you get out and realize how many how many physicians really want to be involved. They just wow. don't know where to start. So, uh, you know, providing that that infrastructure and making it as easy as possible for them, we're up to something like 90 physicians in our, in our network just here in Oklahoma City. Uh, we're working with a large hospital system and providing research infrastructure for them. So that's kind of where we're at today. And it's just, uh, you know, we're still relatively small, bootstrapped and just, you know, trying to, to scale organically. Yeah, I mean, in the last sort of five years, 10 years, maybe, you hear more sort of commercials from healthcare institutions, I don't want to say bragging, but using research as kind of a differentiator, like come to this hospital because we do research. But contrasting that to, you know, your early days where you, people were shutting doors in your face, like, I don't want to do this. How Over what span of time did, did physicians change from like, I don't understand this to like, gosh, I've always wanted to do this. And, you know, how do I sign up? Honestly, you know, I don't know that there was a shift in sentiment as much as I think it needs to be appropriately sold to the mm. physician, if that if that makes sense. I think yeah. it's more in the approach that you take versus because, look, a lot of these guys, their only experience in doing clinical trials was maybe in residency or fellowship or whatever medical school. And it, it was they had to deal with a local IRB. They maybe were just doing data dives. And so they don't, it, it's still just kind of poorly understood. So I think with the right amount of education, as well as I hate to keep using the word selling, because that feels a little bit positioning, dirty, sort of positioning, positioning, right? <laughs> positioning in a way to where it makes sense uh, to them, I think is really the key. So I, I suspect that there was never a, you know, disdain or distaste to do clinical trials. It was just that uh, it hadn't been appropriately positioned to them in a way that that made sense and made it easy. And then, you know, of course, I will say that it, dealing with a large institution is a whole different ballgame than, than dealing with a, you know, small private practice physician. Yeah, yeah. So then after, well, so in academia, it was like a small neurology department. You didn't do a lot of, a lot of research there anyway. And now you've expanded into a whole bunch of different indications. Like what, what sorts of things do you, uh, indications do you research at uh, your, your firm? Uh, just about everything. Uh, I'd say the one place we don't touch a lot, we don't do a lot of pediatric, uh, but we're pretty heavy in GI uh, cardiology. We have a couple different Durham practices. We're just now getting in, landed our first four oncology trials, working with rheumatology, endocrinology, women's health, you name it. Uh, you know, if, if, it's, if it's available for me as a site, I feel like the best strategy is to diversify, you know, therapeutic areas. We all know maybe cardiology is hot, 
well, once all the PCSK9 drugs were approved, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of trials anymore. So we got to be somewhere else. We want to keep the doors open. So our mission is to really try to be as diverse as we possibly can. Yeah, these these drug classes kind of come through the industry and through the community. And once those are done, like the interleukines are real hot now. And once the ILs are gone, it'll be something else for a different What's next, right? Yeah, therapeutic area for sure. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with a little old adage to transition us into you know the meat of the talk, which is you know, be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> so and I say this, you know, jokingly, cl- clearly you're passionate about research. But judging by a lot of your LinkedIn posts, there's there's still a lot that can be improved. And gosh, I don't even know where to begin. How about we talk about your last post, which was, you know, hey, if you're a male who's never taken a drug before, and so you list out this like hypothetical, very constraining set of eligibility criteria, but not all that off the mark in terms of what research is looking for in terms of a patient profile, right? They're often looking for people who are left-handed and speak three languages and men who don't ask for directions, like that kind of a thing. It's, right. it's a, it's a very, you know, narrow, um, narrow eligibility set. Tell us more about, you know, where, like, of course there needs to be a balance because you just can't in the beginning, give it to all comers because you can't distinguish signal from noise, but where do you see things getting just Come on, guys. Why did you include this inclusion criteria? Like, where do you see the like, sort of the most egregious INE criteria being set? I mean, and I think especially I mean, if you look at some of the responses there, it's it's fairly pervasive that that's the case. I mean, of course, the post was meant to be satirical, but it's it's only barely satirical, right? right. Uh, the example I use a lot is that uh, we work with a, a headache clinic and we're doing migraine trials. Well, they're seeing nothing but hundreds of migraine patients all the time. Uh, if I'm working a migraine trial and I can't enroll any patients out of this clinic, then what are we doing? Who are we serving with with these trials? And a sort of personal, you know, pet peeve I have is that uh, oftentimes, you know, these are phase three trials. These drugs meet uh, get approval. Who are they prescribing them to? Are they only prescribing them to those tight? narrow criteria patients? Well, no, they're not. They're they're prescribing them to a much broader patient population. So my take is like, well, then why aren't we testing it on the broader patient population? Why aren't we testing it on what real patients look like? And you know, not to get further down a rabbit hole, but I also feel like the <laughs> the whole DCT movement could probably be less of a big deal if we just improved upon our IE criteria. Instead of having to reach across the country to find the patient, why can't I find them in my backyard in a typical clinic with typical patients? You know what I mean? So (laughs) that's something that's always bothered me. I don't think it's getting better. I think it could be potentially even getting worse. Uh, And I don't know if that's a about getting conspiratorial. Is that like a strategy by pharma to make sure that they don't get they don't get the noise they don't want that they just are getting those patients they know that it's very likely to work well on or is this a truly driven by the scientific need to be that sort of narrow and i mean i'm not a scientist i can't answer that so uh, forgive me if i've uh, no i mean come on you're a scientist for sure uh you practice it so that means you are yeah, I mean, I think it always depends on the drug. If there's a certain safety issue, of course, you don't want the, you don't want to hurt people in research. Of course, but 
Yeah, your point is well taken. And I like this notion of like, why are we trying to enroll the whole state of Oklahoma when there's plenty of patients here? If you just change criteria B and C, you wouldn't have an enrollment problem. Because that, right. that has always been the, the plot of DCT is to try and enroll more and f- more faster. But it's kind of like the the lady who swallowed the fly, right? You swallow the spider to catch the fly and you keep like swallowing <laughs> right, right. different things when you, if you just, I don't know why you swallowed the fly is the kind of, uh, is the yeah, whole Just punchline. spit the fly out instead, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this is like the least of our problems because once, once uh, you know, once you say yes to a protocol, what is it you get from the from the sponsor company to say, okay, well, here are your instructions of how to run this, and how different is that from when you were pitched the protocol in the first place? Yeah, well, and, and again, to are they catfishing to, you? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but I, I will say it's. Uh, I mean, we suffer from a lack of standardization in that process, right? Because I may have to decide if a study is a good idea for us based off of the study title and a limited synopsis that may or may not even include a full inclusion exclusion criteria. It may not include the mechanism of action of drug. It may not include, it certainly doesn't include oftentimes the schedule of assessments, which is going to be what we're asking the patient to deal with by being in the trial. So it happens all the time. You look at a synopsis and you're like, oh, easy. This looks great. We've got thousands of patients. So we're going to put in a number that's high. And maybe, yeah, okay, maybe we'll cut it in half just so we don't look like idiots later nonetheless. And then you get selected for the trial. They come on, do site selection. There's really maybe not a lot of new information, even at that time. You get awarded the trial. <laughs> and then it's almost, it's like, it's here's the full protocol. Well, as a site, sometimes you feel like, okay, well, it's too late. We have committed to doing this trial now. And I know that that's not true. You know, if we don't sign a contract, we're not under no obligation to go on, but you've also already put in a lot of work. You've got some sunk costs kind of in this at that point, you know, the protocol doesn't always tell the whole story, uh, even in and of itself. So, you know, I can look at a schedule of assessments and see that I need to draw vital signs or not draw vital signs, but I need to take vital signs. Well, what I didn't know is I needed to do them three times, five minutes apart in different postural, you know, situations. Uh, and, and those sorts of things start to stack. They start to stack up throughout the course of you you know, going through a protocol or building source documents. And then pretty soon you're like, this is a huge pain in the ass and we didn't <laughs> expect this. And this is way harder than, than it is, but we already committed to enrolling 10 patients. Now the sponsor's mad at us, but we're trying as hard as we can. I mean, as you can see, this is a, you know, it's kind of a disorganized uh, story, but it, things get away from you real quick. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and I think it's challenging to, account for all of those things when a lot of that information is just simply not available to you at the time of <laughs> the time where it's, you need to make the decision right now. And yeah. sp- sponsors are ob- honest. And oftentimes you're on a three day, you know, Response uh, deadline. Time. We need this, we need this back immediately. Well, okay. Then here it is. And then we just have to say, sorry later. Yeah. Yeah. To- I mean, so, you know, this, 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 uh, this anecdote of the vital signs thing, right? So in a schedule of events, that would be represented as an X under a visit with a vital signs. And then maybe there's a footnote at the bottom, or maybe in later in the protocol, there's, you know, appendix, you know, 1-3, where it starts to label all that out. And to your point, it's just impossible in the heat of the battle to be flipping through and looking for stuff, even if it's even if it's searchable. So let's say you have like a searchable way to do it. Like you're still, control, you still have to remember. Less. Yeah. Control. 
you still have to remember what you don't know, which I think is kind of the, one of the key things here. If there's an unknown unknown, well, then you're, you know, you're out of luck, at, you know, at some point. And I guess maybe well, compounding the problem further, let me, let me test this on you. Because you're running multiple protocols, you're not seeing five patients for that protocol Monday through Friday, right? You might see patient for protocol A on a Monday and not see another one till the next Monday. Right. Yeah. yeah so or, or a week, two weeks from now, just depending yeah. again on how difficult it is. And, you know, we do take, and a lot of sites try to take measures to minimize those unknowns. So, you know, we'll say very quickly, well, give us some CRF guidelines so that we can actually know what the hell we're going to be looking at because there's nothing worse than having a patient on site and you're trying to, you know, maintain or write down your source, but then you're one of checking it against the CRF in real time. You're drawing this patient's visit out to, you know, several hours possibly because, because you don't want to mess up. And a lot of times, again, you just don't know till it's too late. Even with CRF guidelines, a lot of those are written as almost like code that goes into the EDC. So you're having to like translate this, you know, weird code out of this 200 page document that you, that you're going through. And it doesn't always make clear what's conditional that's going to pop up once you enter something else in. So again, you really turn into like your coordinator can turn into like a private investigator real quick and it gets, uh, it gets challenging and can be very overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, you should almost recruit from the police academy <laughs> to get a bunch of detectives <laughs> working under you too. Uh, right. So, you know, as you're, as you might get like a perfect, I don't want to say perfect protocol, what's the perfect kind of set of instructions, recognizing that because as soon as I say set, it's imperfect because you don't want a, a bunch of manuals, but like, what's the perfect set of instructions you might want to see from a sponsor to, to be able to do your job as a hardworking, smart person of integrity? Sure. And we've seen this with, with some sponsors. It's very rare, but they, they'll oftentimes provide a, a separate sort of manual of procedures so that that is, I mean, it's chronological, right? So I can know going into a visit, okay, well, I need to start because I mean, this is another conversation, but like, which system do I start with? Where do I get the subject number? Okay. You're going to start with IBRS here. You're going to, you know, get a subject number. It's is it going to carry over into the EDC or is it not going to carry over into the EDC? I don't know that yet, but you know, again, having some even broad uh, instructions or manual of operations to sort of lay these things out for you, it's incredibly useful. And I feel like if you're the sponsor or CRO or whoever putting in all the time into these protocols and all these vendor, you know, separate vendor manuals, like why can't we consolidate that into a, cohesive manual yeah. in some way, you know, again, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't even need to be perfect. Honestly, just give me a starting point so that I'm not sort of grasping in the dark, uh, especially for those first two or three patients. Uh, and again, we've seen this across some studies and when it, when they do it, guess what? The study gets more attention because it's easier to, to navigate. We waste less time, you know, trying to correct issues we didn't even know existed Patient visits get done quicker because we're not, again, we're not in the middle of a visit going, well, what do we do next? Which, which system? No, wait a minute. Which system is it that, that, you know, kicks the drug out for us? So I feel like it would behoove sponsor and site alone, you know, alike to, to be more deliberate 
and and providing these sorts of things and i can't account for why it's not more prevalent it just seems insane to me that it's not yeah just a full integrated workflow of tech behaviors data like you said it's going to make things go faster which is good for the site because your your turn is better it's good for the patient no one wants to sit around longer than they need to sounds like the data is going to be much higher quality because you're just going to make less errors this is it's just a win-win win win (laughs) well i mean and and let me me turn a a question around on you i mean i've heard this from you know cras i like to i like to really pick the brains of the cras who come in just because they see so many different site models but i understand that a lot of sites want to do things their own way right like so there may be some pushback from sites in these situations because they're saying uh, we have our own SOPs and our own way of doing things. Uh, we don't want to be beholden to uh, the CRO or sponsor and what they're telling us to do. Do you think in any way that could possibly prevent this being more ubiquitous? I mean, do you think that's... I don't... I mean, I, I think there are sites who want flexibility to do certain things their own way. I do believe that for sure. What doesn't need to, what is not mutually exclusive is to allow that, but then also provide tight orchestration around things that must be done a certain way because of the science, yeah. as well as serve up all the right tech when you need it. So those things are not mutually exclusive, I think. So if I can imagine just off the top of my head, a workflow, there are going to be certain things where it doesn't matter for the protocol that they're done in a certain order or whatever. Like those can be just set aside as you do these however you want. Uh, but when it comes to the technology, here are the things you need to get in that order, right. else it's not, not going to work. Yeah, so, well, I mean, again, it's a I, I agree problem. with that. Yeah. I agree with that sentiment. Again, I think it's a. Uh, it's hard sometimes, especially for you know academic sites and big institutions where we tend to look at things in a very black and white way uh, and don't always you know i like to embrace the gray <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of that but i don't think that's necessarily a common sentiment when it comes to clinical trials yeah. they pe- things need and want things to be almost excessively clear and yeah. unfortunately it's just that's just not yeah. it's not how it works <laughs> yeah and to your point like an integrated workflow can be presented and if you don't want to use that just throw it away and do it sure. your own so it's not preventing the sponsor from building one for people who want it, to your point. So, you know, in terms of percentage of studies that might come across your desk, how many today get a really good, you know, kind of integrated workflow presented and how many are just like either manuals or, you know, worse, nothing? I mean, I want to say it's it's sort of the, you know, Pareto principle 80-20, but it's probably, that's probably not accurate. It's probably more... 10% are providing something wow really actually useful and beneficial to sites and I, I find the irony is that the bigger the sponsor company it's almost the less support that's given you know which seems counterintuitive to me yeah. but if I work with a small device company a lot of times they've got they got their ducks in a row yeah and I don't know if that's just because I mean they don't have any other choice if their device doesn't <laughs> if their comp- if their drug or device doesn't work, they're screwed. They're out of yeah, business. But of business. you know, a, a big company can afford maybe to you know string things along or 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 not do that. But yeah, yeah, for whatever reason, it's always occurred to me that like, oh, you're the company that's got twenty billion dollar market cap, and you can't provide me like any resources. You're not even going to send me a binder. 
you know, to, to put my reg documents in. So very strange, but that yeah. seems to be the world we live in. I, I think we should have a second podcast about around finances because I'm dying to hear, but we'll do that maybe a second time. Sure. I, I do want to sort of end on a more positive note, which is like, what? why do you stay in research? It's, it's clearly a headache. Uh, and this is a softball question, but like, why do you stay? I mean, I do, I do love it legitimately. And I, I, I do worry that, that like my uh, sort of public cynicism or skepticism is, uh, you know, painting a bad picture, but you know, we're, we just finished enrolling a trial for patients with uh, post-amputation pain. It's a, you know, fancy stimulator that goes around the sciatic nerve. This is just an example, but being able to see these, these patients are crying because they're pain-free for the first time in their lives. And these are people who have been on the brink of suicide because of chronic pain. And to see people's lives change and quality of lives change. I mean, it makes it, it makes it worth it. I mean, it's, it's sounds cheesy and it sounds like sort of an easy answer, but I mean, it's, it's very visceral and emotional to, to see those things. And frankly, I mean, I, a lot of that's what keeps me going. And then on top of it, I feel like in any way I can help contribute to the inefficiency to help get these things to market faster, because these things need to be in people's hands, uh, you know, and Whatever small part I can possibly have in that, uh, I I would feel feel honored to be able to be a part of that process. Yeah. Now, well, on me, all your comments don't land as cynical at all. What I what I see is another person who sees the emperor is not wearing exactly the clothes they think they're wearing, and I think it's really important for people to echo that, amplify that, agree, align, and and make some change for sure. How about the physicians who have come on to to your model? How are they liking? Is this everything that they wanted? Is it you know, what, is anything surprised them about the research enterprise? Uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's it's a it spans the spectrum, right? Because frankly, I mean, we have physicians get into it for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, some, you know, for better or worse, they they are interested in the financial potential financial gain that they can have. Uh, some are doing it for much more altruistic reasons. Uh, but I do think, and this is also why it's it's hard for us to scale as a company. Is it's it's very personal. And I think we try our, our damnedest to sort of customize our offering and our approach in a way that resonates with that physician. And I, ultimately, I think that's the key to success when it comes to uh, increasing access to clinical trials. I mean, I, I think we have to do a good job of making it so that the physician likes it and whatever that may mean, whether that means they want to have their name in a newsletter as a leading enroller, or it means that they want to see some secondary income uh, for their small struggling private practice, or it means that they want to be a key opinion leader or whatever the case may be. So generally, uh, I will say it's been overwhelmingly positive. Now, I'm not going to lie. There are physicians out there that have no business being a PI, and we come across those as well, sometimes too late. But (laughs) uh, I, I do think that it's incumbent upon us to go out there and, and give it a shot. You know what I mean? And then see who, who cuts the mustard and who doesn't. And that, that's a sort of a long winded answer without saying much, but again, I'd say overwhelmingly it, it's a positive experience. And I think people, especially like some of these community oncology centers deeply appreciate the ability to participate in these trials without having to reinvent the wheel yeah. and, you know, start from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, plug, plug your, um, plug, plug your uh, research firm. Where is it? Where can people find you either online or in real life? Sure. I'm 
pretty active on LinkedIn. I don't really use a lot of other social media. Uh, our uh, you know research companies, Hightower Clinical, HightowerClinical.com. Also, I do a podcast, NoteToFilePodcast.com, uh, really geared towards sites specifically. And very lastly, I have a recent website, ClinicalTrialConfidential.com, which is sort of a more of a web forum for people who can come together, even you know, speak anonymously with the hopes that we can, again, sort of maybe come to some consensus and increase transparency at the site level so that, you know, sites can really all sort of rise together. So those are, those are my, those are my plugs. I appreciate that opportunity. Yeah. I love it. Uh, Well, keep doing what you're doing, Brad. I hope to meet you in real life uh, very soon. Thanks for coming on the show and have a wonderful day. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning into Research Confidential. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about us, show notes, transcripts, and resources, please visit proofpilot.com. If you'd like to debunk a clinical research myth, share some war stories, or maybe just show our audience what kind of heroics it takes to pull off gold standard research, send us your thoughts, episode ideas, and more to help at proofpilot.com. This show was presented by ProofPilot and is powered by Outcomes Rocket. This episode was brought to you by the Outcomes Rocket Network. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure you leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and let us know what you're looking for.